Almighty God, we thank you for the gift of life. We thank you for the, the privilege and the gift that it is to be here and to spend time worshiping you, praying to you, giving to you, um, spending time with each other, other, other spirit-indwelt believers. And we, we want to pause and just return thanks to you for that, uh, to not take those gifts for granted, to not assume that those are things that are ours by, by right, but those are all gifts from you. And so we do thank you that you're a, a God who gives many good gifts. And Lord, as we talk about what we're going to talk about today, I ask that you can uh, allow me to proclaim your truth, and that all of the things that you would want implanted on our hearts can just stick, and the things that aren't of you can fall away. And Lord, I ask that you can help us as a result of this to learn how to love you, uh, to serve um, as you would have us in the world, and to love each other, and help us to build up the church through obedience to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so, after reading that text in uh, Acts, if we're honest, if we're honest, I think one of the first emotions could perhaps possibly be embarrassment. Like kind of an awkwardness, a, a sense of this is a little bizarre, this is a little interesting here. He was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. This is something that is kind of a little hard to picture, and if we do, maybe it comes across as being uh, corny or Monty Python-esque or something interesting like that. But we can, you know, we can picture a lot of things. We can picture the cross. Uh, we can picture the cross and the real human flesh and blood suffering of Jesus, and we can we can even picture the resurrection as this glorious moment where the suffering, wounded Jesus is fully alive again and restored to new life. And we can, we can think of those things. They're not, they're not easy to make sense of, but we can picture those, and they can evoke uh, some real serious, sincere emotions in us. But to picture Jesus chatting with his disciples, talking with them, and then all of a sudden he's being lifted into the sky, for a lot of people, th- this could seem a little silly. People could hear this and think this is a little silly, and not only a little embarrassing, but also pointless, perhaps. And so it's understandable why this is a pretty overlooked belief of the Christian faith, even though we've already talked about its centrality throughout history. Uh, Not only is it kind of awkward and embarrassing to try to explain this or make sense of this or commit to believing about it, but it's also kind of useless. You know, we're very practical people. We're very practical people, and we want to know the purpose that this teaching serves. We can theologically make sense of some of these other things, but what purpose does this serve? Even if I affirm it as being real and historical and biblically true, if it doesn't have some sort of purpose in my life, I, I might not really think about it that much from day to day or spend too much time being thankful for it. So I'm just getting that out of the way. I'm, just, I'm, I'm pointing that out in case that was something that you felt or thought and felt guilty for. It's, it's nothing to feel guilty about. This is an honest reaction that we could perhaps feel when we read this. Uh, yes, there is the temptation to hear this teaching and to hear this text and think, you know, I'd rather not. I'd rather not go there. Uh, It's hard enough believing some of the weird things that I have to believe as a Christian. I don't need this added to the list as something that I need to affirm. And there uh, there are indeed some things that would need to be clarified about this and about this text even, but there is so much to this that we need. Uh, There's a reason why this was a, a belief that needed to be confessed amongst early Christians. This is something that was very important. There's reasons for that. And it's not enough to just say it's true and then avoid it and then be embarrassed by it. It's not enough to say that God has ways that he wants to encourage and strengthen us today as a result of this, this teaching of the ascension of Jesus Christ. But first, we need to back up a little bit 
to make sense of where we're at. Uh, During Advent, during the Christmas season, we celebrate the coming of Christ in the flesh. Okay? We celebrate the coming of Christ in the flesh. We talk about Jesus arriving, Jesus being born into the world. This is all true. These are all true things that happen. But one thing we don't, or one thing we shouldn't, talk about at Advent is Jesus coming into existence. Okay? We never say that. Or if we do, we shouldn't be. We don't talk about Jesus coming into existence. Jesus had no beginning. Very important. Jesus had no beginning. Uh, John chapter 1. All things were made through him, Jesus, and apart from him was not anything made that has been made. Meaning he's the channel. He's the conduit of all things being made. He's not a created thing. He's not a created being. Colossians 1 says, He, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus always has been. He as God is alone eternal. Foundational teaching of Christianity. So at Christmas, what we're celebrating isn't the beginning of Jesus. Rather, we celebrate the beginning of the incarnation of Jesus. The beginning of the enfleshment of Jesus. Of God in Christ taking on flesh and blood and walking among us as a human. This is something uh, we talked about here this past Christmas season. I preached a message here during the Advent season, and this was one of the things we talked about specifically, was what does it mean to know Jesus as being incarnate? So Christmas is about this Jesus who has always been there, taking on human nature, flesh and blood. So it's not as though the Trinity was invented at the first Christmas. This isn't what happened. It's not uh, as though up until then there was only God the Father, and then all of a sudden he decided to do this cellular mitosis thing and then create a couple of other gods and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. That's not what he did. At all. Christmas, the incarnation, is the eternal Jesus taking on a human nature that he previously didn't have. We talked about this in uh, the Hebrews class that I was teaching for Lifetime this morning. Just the newness of what it means that at this point in history, Jesus became human in a way that he wasn't before. He took on this human nature. Okay, so, Jesus taking on a human nature. What does that have to do with the ascension? How are those things related? And how is that important? And this is, this is how they relate. The whole point, the whole substance of the teaching of the ascension is that Jesus, fully God, fully man, remains fully God, fully man, as he lives, loves, and reigns over the heavens and the earth. I, call, I, I titled this sermon, I think it might be on the program, but the title of this sermon was uh, A Living, Loving, Ruling Hope. Part of that is from that first Peter text that Bruce had read about having this living hope in Christ. And so you you maybe already knew that Jesus is living and loving and ruling, and I hope that you did. But the ascension is the reminder that Jesus does this as a real, human, embodied, flesh and blood man currently. That's the importance of this teaching. So going back to our Acts passage, what does this uh, talk about Jesus being lifted up uh, out of their sight on a cloud into the heavens? What What does this mean? Well, one thing that it doesn't mean, what it doesn't mean is that Jesus went into the physical sky and that if you get in your spaceship and travel far enough, you'll be able to catch up with him sometime. That's not what it means. And I'm not saying that to to, to mock it or throw the Bible under the bus at all, but we need to understand what is actually being said here. What it means is that Jesus is taken into the heavenly realm, the place of God's presence. You read the Old Testament and you see things like in Exodus, God's presence is in the pillar of cloud. Or in Kings and Chronicles, uh, God's glory comes as a cloud and fills the temple. That's God's presence. 
That's the form that it takes on. So St. Luke, who wrote Acts, is pointing out that this idea of Jesus is, Jesus is being taken into the fullness of God's presence, into the fullness of God's glory. He's being taken upon a cloud. And as far as this idea of him being lifted up, uh, C.S. Lewis was, was talking about this in one of his writings, and he even commented and said, well, if he was going to depart from them, this, this is the way that he had to do it. He had to be lifted up. How else was he going to do it? This, this is the way he needed to do it to communicate to his disciples the significance of what was going on. If he had simply vanished, that would have sent the wrong message. He was here with us, and now all of a sudden he's just gone, and he abandoned us. If he departed downwards into the earth, that definitely would have sent the wrong message. Okay, so this is what he had to do. This is what he did to communicate to his disciples the significance of what was going on. So given the limitations of space-time reality, this is how Jesus had to depart to show his disciples that he was entering into the fullness of God's presence. So it actually is very intentional, the way that Luke is writing about this. And in case you think that this is some sort of special pleading so that we don't have to take the Bible literally, that's not at all what I'm trying to do, just remember, even in the earliest days of the church, some of the earliest theologians even said, of course we're not supposed to imagine that Jesus is living in some cottage among the stars. That's what they said. Because they knew that people were misunderstanding this. And in the early church, they even said, this isn't what we're supposed to understand. Rather, he's in the heavenly realm, in the fullness of the Father's presence. He's in an entirely new dimension of reality by being in the heavenlies. In fact, it's the realest, truest, most significant dimension of reality. That's what heaven is. It's not just the sky. Heaven is the truest form of reality. And that's where our citizenship is, as Paul tells us in Philippians. So all of this, this leads us to understanding some of the pastoral significance of this teaching for our lives. Okay, so we've affirmed that the ascension means that Jesus right now, Jesus right now still exists in his physical, human, flesh and blood body. But, in this body, he doesn't live here on earth. He doesn't walk among us. He exists on a different plane of reality. He exists in the heavenly realms. Or as the scriptures often put it, he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. This is one of the favorite terms that the New Testament authors like to, like to use when they're talking about where Jesus is. How do we understand where he is? He's seated at the right hand of God the Father. So what does this mean? We're affirming this. What are the implications of this? Uh, if you turn to Colossians 3, I don't think we have the words on the screen for this, but if you turn to uh, Colossians 3, starting at verse 1, it says this. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This this is an ascension text rooted in this teaching. Paul is making the argument that since Christ is in heaven, because he's in heaven, seated at God's right hand, this is where you're supposed to fix your thoughts. If your true identity is hidden with Christ in God, you need to be paying attention to where he is and fix your thoughts there. And it's very important to recognize that this does not mean, okay, sit around all day just dreaming about some ethereal paradise or something like that, and be of no earthly good. That's not what it means at all. Because Paul, in chapter 3, he even goes on to say that because of this fixation on heaven, you actually need to live in harmony with people around you. Because of this fixation on heaven, you actually need to be compassionate. You need to control your anger. You need to not hand yourself over to sexual immorality. 
You need to control your emotions. You need to make it so that all you do in word or deed is in the name of Jesus. Because of this, fixing your thoughts on heaven. So obviously, he's not talking about just daydreaming about heaven. When he says, think about things above. That's not what he's talking about. Rather, the point is this. Live in such a way that makes the presence of God the goal. The presence of God, being with him, being in his presence, live in such a way that makes this the goal. If Christ is at the right hand of God and your life is hidden with Christ, then you need to be living in a way that aligns with this. That's what he's saying. If you're doing things that aren't fit for the presence of God, if you're, if you're treating people in a way that doesn't bring the presence of God, if you're causing disunity and discord that doesn't align with the peace of the presence of God, then what are you doing? That, that's the thrust of this message here. Then what are you doing? That's his point. So that's, that's the first point that I just want to emphasize. The ascension means we need to live in a way that makes sense of our true citizenship, our true identity being in heaven, hidden in the living Christ who's seated at the right hand of God. It's as though Jesus, in the, in the incarnation, he comes to meet us in our own human nature. Jesus comes to meet us in our own human nature, and in so doing, he gathers up our citizenship papers. He meets us where we're at as flesh and blood humans. He gathers up our citizenship papers, and in the ascension, he brings those into God's presence. And puts them where they belong. And because of Christ doing this, one day we'll be able to be actual residents in the land where right now we're rightful citizens. Again, that's Paul's point in Philippians. This is where your citizenship lies. Even though that's not where you are yet. Live as a citizen of heaven. Second way that this makes a difference, this whole teaching on the ascension. And, I, and this is something I hinted at before. The ascension means that Jesus, in his physical human body, continues to live, love, and rule. And I mentioned that before, but what this means, what this means first of all is that Jesus is alive, and second of all, it means he doesn't exist in some sort of wispy, ephemeral sense that we can't really quite uh, understand. It, it's, it's not that he lives like that and then we're allowed to kind of do whatever we want with his current identity. Because that's what we do sometimes. That's what we do with a lot of people who are gone. Okay, it's, it's so often thought that, you know, Jesus once existed, but he's gone now, so now all we can try to do is to try to sort of live in accord with his legacy that he left. You know, it's, it's however we interpret that. It's kind of like the idea of how uh, Gandhi or Martin Luther King or Steve Jobs once existed, and now people want to kind of carry on the spirit of these people, the things that they were about, the things that they did. They want to carry that on. And it's completely up, up, up for grabs in terms of what it means to actually carry it on carry on the legacy, the spirit of that person. The fact that Jesus is alive and embodied and reigning means we don't get to do that. We don't get to just interpret that however we want. We're still his subjects. He still rules us. He's still the living Lord. And the beauty of this, and this is the thing that I, I kind of thought of in a new way when I was preparing for this. The, the, the beauty of this is that it means that even though we continue in Christ's work here on earth, we do so only under his active lordship and by the power of his spirit. And th there's a difference between that and how we sometimes understand that because I think we sometimes understand it as though Jesus is maybe some sort of absentee landlord where legally he's in charge of all this kind of stuff, but he doesn't really do anything about it and he has no real role in any of it. It's not as though Jesus is some sort of absentee landlord and that ought to remove a burden from us that perhaps we carry far too often. 
We often talk about being the, the hands and feet of Christ as the church, and that's certainly true. We are the hands and feet of Christ. We are the body of Christ. But it's not as though, as the body of Christ, it's not as though our job is to just play Jesus and imitate what he might have done because now he's completely gone. He's completely out of the picture. And so now we just kind of do our best at playing Jesus. Rather, we live and work and obey and repent with this peaceful, steady confidence that Jesus is actively leading and ruling his church. The living Jesus, actively leading and ruling his church. So it's, it's not as though uh, it's this picture of the CEO or the leader who is dead and we're, we're still trying to run things the way that he might have done it if he were still here. We can actually come to him. That's what the ascension teaches us. We can actually come to him. We can actually pray to him. We can actually seek out the living Jesus to reveal his will to us. And we can trust that he's eager to give us opportunities to obey if we're willing. He's there. He hasn't just left the building. That's the point of this. And that's a beautiful thing. The third and final thing that I want to point out is that the ascended living Jesus intercedes and sympathizes for us. The ascended and living Jesus intercedes and sympathizes for us. Uh, Turn to Hebrews chapter 4. The other time I flipped there too fast. I was racing you guys. This time I'll take my time. Hebrews chapter 4. Verses 14 and 15. A beautiful, beautiful text. It says this. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. Uh, you, you, you can read the part about being tempted. He says, tempted as we are. You can read that, and I think our minds immediately go to Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. Or something like that. And, and I do think that's totally true. That that's something that the author would have had in mind there. But the word temptation, in, in the Greek language, the word temptation means simply a test or a trial. It's not always just the idea of wanting to do something wrong or wanting to commit sin. It's this idea of a test or a trial that one endures. Some older translations say he's able to sympathize as one who has been through every fiery trial, yet is without sin. So Jesus' incarnation, the fact that he took on flesh. Jesus' incarnation means he knows what life in a human body is. He knows what human limitations can be like. He knows what pain is. Think about that. How did God experience pain before? He's God, so of course he knew. He had knowledge of it in some sort of way. But to actually experience it, and to live it, and to actually be wounded, to actually be crucified, this is something that he experienced in a new sort of way. His suffering means he knows what pain is. And his ascension means that he can sympathetically bring this knowledge into the presence of God. And when we say he intercedes, it means that he he does this work of a merciful priest, presenting our case before God. And he does that lovingly, and God lovingly hears it. And that's his role as this great high priest. Uh, One thing that's often said is that the ascension teaches that, that, that our human nature is pledged before God and our human nature is brought before him and the gift of the Holy Spirit is God's nature gifted to us. And so we have this, this unity and this conversation with God that we didn't have before. It's a really beautiful thing. Um, 
I don't know how many of you are poetry people. I'm not even really a poetry person. But I found a really beautiful poem written by a Christian uh, author and poet named Malcolm Geith. And he wrote a sonnet, uh, a sonnet about the ascension. And so sometimes poetry, with its evocative language, can say things a lot better than any sermon or explanation can. So I'm going to read this. I just want you to listen, close your eyes, whatever you need to hear this. It's really beautiful. He says this. We saw his light break through the cloud of glory whilst we were rooted still in time and place. As earth became a part of heaven's story and heaven opened to his human face. We saw him go and yet we were not parted. He took us with him to the heart of things. The heart that broke for all the brokenhearted is whole and heaven-centered now and sings. Sings in the strength that rises out of weakness. Sings through the clouds that veil him from our sight. Whilst we ourselves become his clouds of witness. And sing the waning darkness into light. His light in us and ours in him concealed. Which all creation waits to see revealed. Let's pray. Jesus, we do long for you to be revealed. Your word says that uh, all creation groans and longs for for you to be revealed in glory. And this, this passage that we read in Colossians talks about how when Christ, who is our life, appears, we will also appear with him in glory. And Lord, we long for that. Um, help us to understand what it means that you haven't left us alone. You haven't left us as orphans. Help us to understand what it means that it's not up to us to, uh, to run on our own steam, to try to lead the church and to try to live the Christian life on our own steam. It's up to us to look to you as our Lord and shepherd, prophet, priest, and king. Jesus, we thank you that you know what it means to be human. We thank you that you've, you've brought human nature into the presence of God and our citizenship lies there with you. Help us to live as citizens of heaven. Help us to know what that means. Help that to not be an abstract, uh, impossible ideal, but let that be something that we actually want to chase after. The the idea of what it means to actually live differently, because we're not citizens here. We're not citizens in this society, in this this world. Uh, we're, We're citizens of heaven. Help us to understand what that means. Thank you for your truth, Jesus. Please apply these things to our hearts and and let us uh, sing the waning darkness into light now, just as this poem says. In Christ's name, amen.